tried to make it clear to you over the last number of months that beginning next Sunday we will be joining with Ronnie Hill in a harvest crusade from Sunday morning through Wednesday night. I think we've communicated well. You have more information in your worship guide today. It's important that we pray. It's important that we invite friends. And we've made some tickets, especially adult steak night tickets, available to you. And they'll be available after the service. In order to communicate the good news of Christ and even invite someone, we've got to be confident that God is true. And we have been declaring God's truth for tough issues for several weeks. Probably the number one challenge to the Christian faith and even belief in God is the question, if there is a good God, why is there suffering? Of course, today on Sunday, after some of the massacres that took place in college football yesterday, it's a very appropriate topic. But it is the number one challenge that atheists and some others throw at the Christian faith. I want to turn that question around and not so much pose it as a question. I'll, I'll have some questions today. But I actually want to propose to you that instead of undermining faith in God, pain actually strengthens it. I would say to you, indeed, pain is even a gift at times from God. Dr. Paul Brand is, uh, was, until his death in 2003, a world-renowned hand surgeon who went from uh, hand surgery to working with leprosy. And he is the one responsible for coming to the conclusion and popularizing, um, in the medical field at least, the notion that leprosy does not cause people to lose their fingers and noses and toes and appendages. That actually leprosy means the loss of feeling and they injure and end up maiming themselves because they lack sensitivity to pain. And he came to the conclusion that pain is a gift from God. In fact, living without pain, life without pain, he said, can really hurt you. And he entitled his memoirs, Pain, the Gift Nobody Wants. I'm, I'm reminded, of course, what C.S. Lewis said. He said, God whispers in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pains. Pain, he said, is the megaphone God uses to rouse a deaf world. And I think he's entirely correct. This morning, I want to focus on the question, how can I leverage pain as a gift from God? Well, if you'll join with me in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse number 18, we'll look at that on through verse number 39 this morning. Here in the text, the Apostle Paul, who was very well, deeply acquainted with pain and suffering and misery, argues here that pain is something that the Roman Christians could handle. Now, what he says in verse 18 is all the more remarkable against the backdrop of his life. I don't know of a Christian missionary outside the martyrs who ever suffered as much as the Apostle Paul over such an extended period of time as the Apostle Paul. And so when I read verse 18, it explodes off the page. And I want you to begin reading with me in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility in Genesis 3, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. For we were saved in this hope. In verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now He, God, who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He, the Spirit, makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. Whom He justified, these He also glorified. Oh, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That's oh, God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Oh, it's Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Oh, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pain can be a gift of God to you. Now, I want to clarify... I don't want you going out looking for pain. I don't want you going out, stirring it up and creating it for yourself, or inflicting yourself with many a sorrow or wound. If you follow Jesus Christ, these things will be yours as life goes on. But the question I want to ask and answer this morning is, how can I leverage pain as a gift, and what resources has God given me to do so? Well, there are several that are in the text. One, uh, the first resource is this, preview. You can transform pain into a gift when you look at the Holy Spirit as a pre preview of glory that is to come. Now Paul explains this in verses 20 through 23. And his assumption about the earth and his life is found in verse number 20. He said the creation was subjected to futility. Back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve fell into sin. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In verse 22, another part of his assumption, we know the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. And so the whole earth is much like a dear mother in a delivering room in the midst of labor. And that's the way the world is. That's the way life is. Uh, the good news is, uh, well, the bad news is, there's a lot of pain. The good news is, something's about to be birthed into the earth. And that is Paul's assumption here in the text. And so that leads him here to verse number 23. Not only that, 
but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption or the birth, the full completion of the redemption of our body. He says the Holy Spirit happens to be the first fruits. Now that's an agricultural term. Without an agricultural background, it may be a little difficult to assimilate that, to understand that. But the first fruits were oftentimes the first bit of harvest that they would bring, and it indicated that more was to come just like it. And that's how the Holy Spirit operates in the life of those who follow Christ. He is many things, but one thing He is happens to be the first fruits. So what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life now and has done since you came to Jesus Christ is a preview of what He will do in greater measure later. Now, all throughout the 8th chapter of Romans, the chapter we're looking at this morning, the Apostle Paul has been describing the Holy Spirit and His work. In fact, Romans chapter 8 is the longest chapter on the Holy Spirit anywhere in the Bible. The Holy Spirit is mentioned by name or pronoun more in Romans chapter 8 than any other chapter in the entire Bible. In verse number 2, he says there's life in the Spirit, life in the sense that we're resurrected and released from the condemnation of the law. Verse number 4, we can walk with the Spirit. Verse number 6, we have life and peace in the Spirit. Verse number 10, we have life to our mortal bodies, which is a power to overcome temptation and sin. Verse 14, we have the leadership of the Spirit. Verse 15, we're liberated from, a fear, from the, we're free from the bondage and the fear of sin and corruption, and we can cry out by the Spirit, Abba, Father. Verse 16, we have the witness of, Spirit, of the Spirit that we are the children of God. Well, Paul says, this is lovely and it's wonderful, but it's just the beginning. Just as an engagement ring anticipates and previews wedding vows, and, and just as um, a down payment previews and anticipates the full purchase price of a car or a home, and just as chips and salsa previews the fajitas to come. The truth is, the Holy Spirit previews the glory that is to come. And Paul says he previews glory in verse number 18 and 19. He previews liberty in verse 22. And he previews victory in Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit's presence in your life is guarantee of future glory that's greater, future liberty that is greater, and future victory in Jesus Christ that is greater. The Holy Spirit is with us and what He's brought. There is more to come for all the children of God. Now that means this. Whatever it is that you are now suffering is temporary. One way or another, it will exhaust itself or God will bring it to a conclusion. That is why I discourage suicide, among many other reasons, because suicide ends up being, of course you know, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. It might be long-lasting, but there is a limited time for which it will last. Every problem that you face is temporary, but the glory and the liberty and the victory of Jesus Christ will be forever, and the presence of the Holy Spirit is merely the first fruits and guarantee of that truth. Begin to view it that way, and you're going to be able to use pain as a gift. But there's a second thing, a second resource, and that is prayer. When you're suffering, and tears cascade down your face, and you have torrents and tumults 
and the shifting of Teutonic plates in your soul with sorrow and difficulty. You can be baffled and you can struggle to pray. Sometimes you don't even know how to pray. What in the world do you say to God in a time like that? In a time like that, there's verse 26 and verse 27 that God gives you. He says the Holy Spirit begins to act in your prayers when you're struggling and you do not know how to pray. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit is not only the first fruits, but the Holy Spirit helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So we'll never hear them, but He, he, uh, he uh, gives them to the Father anyway. Now God, who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, is what happens. Well, there are several ways to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You see, whenever you pray, the Holy Spirit pleads in your prayers. He joins together with you, and He pleads, and it's a timely pleading. It's at the right time, because He does it when you're weak. You're strongest in prayer when you're weak. Because not only, you see, or not only are you seeking God with a greater intensity, but so is the Holy Spirit. And then it's a merciful pleading because you do not know what you should ask God. Well, He does. The Holy Spirit is omniscient, and He knows what to ask God. And then it is an intense pleading by the Holy Spirit. He says He does it with groans which cannot be uttered. And then it's a right pleading because at the end of verse 27, it says He does it according to the will of God. So as we pray for God to act, the Holy Spirit pleads with God to listen to our prayers. And the Father is pleased with that ministry and that pleading of the Holy Spirit. And so whenever we're struggling and when we're weak and we pray, the Holy Spirit pleads with us. And He is pleased, uh, pleased with that, God the Father is, because the Holy Spirit is pleading with an intensity and a righteousness that is far beyond what we could ever imagine. So God has arranged every element of prayer for your advantage, especially when you're struggling and going through an enormous difficulty. And that's why through my years in ministry, I've emphasized prayer. I appreciate those pastors who do. And dear friends, we have got to watch ourselves in our church family, by the way. Whenever we lose a dear saint of God like a Jane Eldridge or a Nancy Scruggs, or we lose a Shirley Smith, or we lose a Woody Bruce, we've got to remember that we lose their prayers as well. And someone has got to step forward where they've left off, and we can weaken ourselves if we're not alert to that because they've pled with God on our behalf. And that's why beginning tomorrow morning and every morning this next week, we'll meet here in the worship center at 8.30 in the morning to pray. Tomorrow, deacons and staff will meet, and then on Tuesday, women will meet, and then men will meet on Wednesday and then Thursday, our um, our uh, uh, there'll be others that meet uh, during that time, and then on Friday, our parents of youth and children. So you can transform pain into a gift when you pray, trusting that the Holy Spirit pleads on your behalf, and that's how you can leverage pain into a gift. But there's a third resource, and that happens to be providence. I hope you become familiar with the biblical or with the theological term providence. Do you know what providence is? Providence is oftentimes the anonymous and quiet work of God to arrange circumstances for a goal that God has set, for an intended outcome. Somebody may well ask, how in the world can a good God justify Himself when He causes or allows pain 
in suffering. Of course, that actually assumes there's a God. Somebody may dismiss the notion of God saying, there can't be a God with all the evil in the world. Well, I would ask, if there's evil, don't you believe there's good? Well, if there's evil and good, where did we come up with that idea? Are we imposing our own morality on other people? We're saying this is evil and this is good merely as human beings? Well, no. If there's evil and good, then there is a moral lawgiver who determines what is evil and good. And so that points back to a God. Uh, what was your question, by the way, we might ask? But the question is, and it still remains, how can a good God justify Himself in allowing pain to exist? I would reply with another question. Does a surgeon have a justifiable reason to use a scalpel and cut patients? Does a surgeon have a right to do that? Is a surgeon ever justified in cutting patients? Well, of course he is. And that's much of the thinking that we find in verses 28 and 29. Here we find a statement that has been a soft pillow upon which many people have laid their heads at night in verse 28. And then we find an explanation in verse number 29. Here's the statement. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. We know this. We contemplate. We reflect on these things. That all things, nothing excluded, work together in a symphony for good, as God defines it, to those, not to everyone, but to those who love God and are called or saved called according to His purpose. So God is in the process of arranging everything for something good as He defines it. Well, what is it? Verse 29. Here's His explanation. Whom He foreknew, foreknowing all the details of life and personality and thinking, thought, and decisions. Whom He foreknew, He also pre-planned or predestined, destined beforehand, that we would be conformed to the image of His Son that we would look just like Jesus, that Jesus Christ might be exalted above all the brethren. That's what it would mean to be the firstborn among many brethren. So God is arranging providentially all circumstances that all of those who love God are called according to His purpose might look more and more like Jesus Christ. Well, God must be working something good. Because there's plenty of good in life that looks an awful lot like Christ. If that were not the case, we would all commit suicide. I mean, the pain and suffering would be too much to bear. I'm not so much concerned about the problem of evil in the world. I'm concerned about the problem of good. Where did all that come from? To us sinners. I don't think the appropriate question is, how could a good God let bad things happen to good people? That's, there's never been a more silly question asked than that in all of life. Romans 3, 9, there's none good, no, not one. There's none righteous at all. So the question is not, how can God let bad things happen to good people? The question is, how can God let so many good things happen to bad people? Well, that's the bigger problem. And that's what Romans 8, 28 and 29 are telling us. So God has a plan, and He has arranged the circumstances and events of life to achieve an objective and that is Christ-likeness. It is not happiness. It is not. Well, there's nothing wrong with you to be, being happy, of course. But you have to understand, God has not elevated. That is His goal for everyone. He's elevated christ 
likeness. Of course, we like Christ's likeness as long as it's convenient. But God has different objectives and ways and means in mind. If happiness, though, is the goal of life and the aspiration of life, then pain is pointless. Pain never makes anyone happy. It brings sorrow and it brings misery. So if happiness is the goal, then pain is pointless and we've got good reason to question God. But if God's goal is Christ-likeness, then pain is justified. Pain says something has got to change. I had quite a bit of pain when I was 15 years old. It filled and permeated my, uh, my, uh, uh, my, my body cavity. I'd been out running during the day and came home and became terribly sick. I went to the hospital that evening, stayed overnight, and the next morning had an appendectomy. The pain said something has to change. And you've got to understand, God is so intense and focused on the goal of making His people Christ-like that He will sacrifice comfort and happiness to achieve it. And, but let's admit this. Quite frankly, if there were more Christ-likeness, wouldn't there be less pain in the earth? Someone's estimated 90% of the pain and suffering in the earth is caused by humans, not natural disasters. Well, give or take 5 or 10 points. Let's say it's 80%. If that's true, do you understand? With Christ-likeness, we could eliminate 80, maybe 90% of the pain and suffering in the earth. If Christ-likeness were the heart and soul of every human being, what would things look like today in the Middle East? If Christ-likeness were the heart and soul and thirst and hunger and pursuit of every man and woman, boy and girl on the earth as God wills, what would crime-ridden neighborhoods look like? What would the illicit drug trade look like? What would your home and family and marriage look like? Christ-likeness would eliminate most of the pain and suffering in earth. No wonder God's pursuing it. No wonder this is His goal. And so you can transform pain into a gift when you work with God's providence to make sure that you're growing more and more like Jesus. But there is a fourth resource, and that happens to be permanence. Now, in all of human literature and divine literature, it is hard to match verses 31 through 39. Here in verses 29 and 30, we have five undeniable affirmations that we've just covered. Then in verse 31 through 39, we have five unanswerable questions. And then in verse 38 and 39, we have one unchanging Conclusion. Let's look at the questions, verse 31 through 39. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What a silly thing to be against the people of God. Because God is for us, and there's no higher authority or power. The next question, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Well, it's a silly thing to... Deprive the children of God of anything because God who's already given His Son for sinners will certainly give the rest to His children. 
He gave Jesus Christ to bleed and die on the cross, and if He did that, He will give you the gift of forgiveness today because Christ is risen and intercedes for you. Oh, that moves us on to the next one. Another question, the third question. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who can do that? Because, look how silly this is. It is God the judge who justifies. The next question. Who is he who condemns? Well, what silly it is to do that. It is Christ who died. Furthermore, he's risen. And instead of condemning at the right hand of God, he makes intercession for us. He, with the Holy Spirit, pleads. And then, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, or distress, or persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. Paul had been through all of those and still was permeated and filled and boiling over with the love of God. He said, oh no, yet in all these things we're more than conquerors. Hyper Nikes is the word here. Hyper, intense, Nike, victory. We're hyper Nikes. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Five unanswerable questions and then one unchanging conclusion. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, neither height nor depth, nor any other created thing in heaven, in earth, under the earth, above the earth, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. The conclusion is God's love permeates every step and every experience of the child of God. It is a constant companion with those who are sorrowing and full of tears. He walks with you in great love. Everything manifests the love of God in the life of the child of God. Every pain reveals the love of God. Everything, everything, everything that occurs and comes to the child of God is first passed through hands of love to every one of them. The hands of love are the love of God. There is hope in pain. Young man by the name of Danny gave his testimony at East Texas Baptist University a few years ago. For three summers, he had served as a youth intern at a church in Lake Jackson, Texas. He returned for the fall semester and heard about a young lady in his youth ministry, his youth group at Lake Jackson, who was suffering from pancreatic cancer. It advanced so quickly she was not expected to live through Christmas. Her name was Joy. And she was perfectly named. She was a vivacious, joyful, serious Christian who followed the Lord and witnessed and exalted Christ, yet she's dying of pancreatic cancer. Danny arranged a trip down to Lake Jackson, went to visit her in the hospital. And already that nasty cancer had racked her body and ravaged her body. He sat next to her bed and spoke with her and talked, and they talked about all sorts of things. And finally, Joy interjected a moment of reality into the conversation, and it was very awkward for Danny. He said, Danny, do you know what it's like to live without hope? And his heart sank. He thought she's losing her faith. And he fidgeted for a while, and he tolerated a few moments of awkward silence. And he said, Joy, I've, I've got to be honest with you, I don't. My life has been very blessed. I've never known what it's like to live without hope. And Joy said, neither do I. Neither do I. Jesus Christ is the guarantee of hope and pain and suffering. He endured it, and it can be a gift to every child of God. 
it is not a good reason to doubt the existence or even the love of God. It's a good reason to trust both. Reminds me of a woman by the name of Cheryl who went to her beautician for a little help one Saturday on her hair and her nails. She got to talking to her beautician and the conversation veered to God. And the beautician said, I don't believe in God. And she said, why? She said, well, just go out on the streets. If there's a God, why are there so many sick people? Why are there so many abandoned children? Why there's so much pain and suffering if there's a God? Well, Cheryl didn't say much. She let her finish her hair and nails, and then she went outside, and she saw a woman outside the beauty salon with mangled hair, stringy hair, who was unkept. And she walked back into the beauty salon, and she said, Excuse me, I don't believe in beauticians. She said, what in the world do you mean? I just finished with your hair and nails. She said, I just saw a woman out here with hair that's unkept. Beauticians must not exist. And she went on and labored the point. She said, the beautician finally said in frustration, well, I can't help it. Not everyone comes to me. Bingo. Not everyone comes to me. The only one capable of making sense of suffering and pain is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way to walk through life is with Jesus Christ. Atheism and all the other isms throughout the world are incapable of answering these questions. What about death? What about the grave? What about guilt? And what about sorrow? Jesus Christ has handfuls of answers to each and every one of those. And we declare without shame or reservation of circumstance or conscience, Jesus Christ is Lord of pain and suffering, and He can turn it into a gift. And we don't say that from a vacuum. I'm looking at a congregation today where people have suffered mightily their soul is trembled in a dark hour and yet they've praised the Lord with a night song because Jesus Christ is Lord over it all it's time to come to him with the sorrows would you stand with me quickly our blessed God we thank you You do not sugarcoat this life. In this world we have tribulation, and you told us so. We don't deny it, but we do want to bring it to you. And we thank you that we can because you're not intimidated by our sorrows. You're not flummoxed. You're not panicked. You have no awkward moments with those who suffer. But often we are, and oftentimes we're overwhelmed even by our sins. We've not learned your mind on these matters. Some have denied you. Some have doubted you. Some have failed to come to you. But I pray that you would let the pain that we've experienced have its intended work. And I want to pray that friends today would rush to you for a permanent surrender to Jesus Christ, who himself knew pain far greater than we ever will. Oftentimes, you have rushed with enthusiasm to things that you value. 
You've rushed to ball games and celebrations, and you've rushed to sales at the stores. You've rushed to appointments. Today, God invites you to rush to His Son. And Jesus promises, He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. We'll have staff here standing at the front. We want to help you with your need. Would you come? Some of you know Christ. You followed Him in baptism already. Why don't you come be a part of Beach Haven? You know God wants you here. No good reason to wait. Others of you need to follow Christ in baptism. God may be even calling some to ministry and missions. Why don't you come as well? Tim, would you lead us? Let's sing together and you come. Come.